0: Welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On today's episode, we are very excited to have with us Puntea Van Terheyden. Puntea is a freelance journalist and editor in the UK, specializing in real life and health stories for the national press. She is a British-Iranian journalist who also has endometriosis, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, and other health issues, including severe chronic pain. We'll include links to her website and the article that she wrote that we're going to be discussing today if you'd like to learn more. Uh, Puntea, hello, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, and thank you so much for this wonderful article you wrote addressing a recent incredible tragedy in our community, which is all too common. But before we get into that article and the topic at hand, could you give us a bit of an overview of your experience with hypermobility?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, the, The funny thing about it is that when I immediately got my diagnosis in February, after months of chasing it myself, once I'd realized what was going on, I thought that my experience was quite unique. But as I got into the community a bit more, I realized how incredibly common it is the way that my eds kind of showed itself and progressed the common themes all apply to me it seems it was a little bit symptomatic in childhood and i was kind of double jointed everywhere i was very bendy very flexible had the usual growing pain. but by the time i became a teenager the pain suddenly went through the roof i had all these different injuries you know like i i had a i had issues with my wrists with tendons kind of like bursting out <laughs> and popping and go doing weird things. And it would always happen after my exams when I'd been writing for a long time. I always, my hand was always cramping. Then there was something wrong with my knee and then there was something wrong in my ankle. And it just went on like that. And I was seen by various orthopedic surgeons, specialists, physios, and they all immediately said, you're hypermobile. But nobody ever linked this pattern of injury to EDS. It wasn't until years later after I'd become extremely disabled from increasing Pain and injury um, that I put it together after seeing a TikTok about a lady who had hypermobile EDS. And I just went from there, really. But that's kind of the overview of my own kind of health journey a little bit.
0: Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing your experience. Like you said, I think your experience is all too common in that people will, many people with hypermobility and down lows are diagnosed in adulthood, sometimes very late into adulthood. And many years after symptoms start manifesting and our first re- reaction is kind of, how did I fall through the cracks? You know, it must be just me. I was missed. But in speaking to so many people with this condition and reading so much about it, your experience seems much more the norm than those who are diagnosed Appropriately and at an early age. And it's an incredible tragedy, and the consequences of which are extremely dire. And on that note, you recently wrote an incredible article that I came across after learning about the heartbreaking death of Stephanie Aston, a New Zealand woman with Ehlers Danlos, who, in my understanding from reading about it, had been diagnosed by three different physicians. I think she was diagnosed with vascular Ehlers-Danlos, if I understand right. And it sounds like a doctor came in and she ended up getting a diagnosis of factitious disorder and horrific allegations were made that she was causing her own symptoms. And of course, you know, now, you know, many of us in the community know that she died a few weeks ago and was not getting the medical care that she needed. And I was really struggling with words for how to even begin to address mm-hmm. this immense tragedy, because I am aware of deaths in my own area and many, many countless more who are suffering, many of whom I would guess are suffering in silence or are dying either from self-medication issues, like you know, trying to treat their own pain on their own and going unnoticed by the system. And, and sadly, the people that and their own lives. Like there's a, you know, some countries have this assistance in dying program and it's just a tragedy beyond words, but mm-hmm. you put it into language so beautifully in your article. Could you tell us a little bit about why you wrote that article and what you wish medical providers and the world in general would understand when it comes to Ehlers-Danlos and connective tissue differences?
1: Oh, it's, it's such, where do you even begin? Because what happened to Stephanie Aston is a million shades of inhumane, you know, it's like a complete breach of her human rights, not to have equal access to healthcare. And, you know, one doctor who wasn't even actually, as far as we understand it, equipped to give her a psychological diagnosis, you know, really started a, a very, horrendous chain of events that led to her eventually not being able to access treatment for I believe it was um, anemia but I I wouldn't know exactly but you know that cascade that the doctors started by starting to target her mental illness because they couldn't figure it out saying that she had wrongly that she had some kind of mental illness um, it's just so so much tragedy upon tragedy but even worse is that worldwide patients with hypermobility and particularly EDS um, are struggling to access diagnosis and access care. And they're, they're not being believed. And 70% of hypermobile EDS patients are women and women are already, we know this as an empirical fact, that women face massive gender bias in the medical community as patients, as workers, but particularly as patients. So, if a woman goes in and says, "I feel like I'm dying because I'm in so much pain," then they will go, mm, "Are you under a lot of stress? What's happening with your periods?" So, if you go in year after year saying, "Well, now my elbow is really hurting, and my shoulders hurting, and my knees hurting," I've got a long list of problems. I don't even know where to begin. And doctors are beginning those sessions with a with a you know a gender bias, medical bias about anything. Then you just don't stand a chance. Mm -hmm. I I interviewed a pain consultant this week who told me that in his five years of medical school, connective tissue disorders were not mentioned once, not once in five years. So if they graduate from medical school with zero education and zero information about connective tissue disorders, let alone anything more specific like EDS, then what chance do we have as patients? Mm -hmm. We don't have any chance. It's only through you know, sheer luck of reading an article or seeing a TikTok like I did, where you might put all, you join all the dots that the doctors have failed to join for the majority of your life. It's the lack of education. It's the bias. It's the dismissal. It's the having a starting point of disbelief, which so many GPs seem to have, as if people are going there wanting to be ill. You know, people go to the doctor typically because there's something wrong with them. So if a patient is going again and again and again and again, it doesn't mean they're mentally ill. It means that they're having a lot of health problems. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. That's absolutely astounding that that physician didn't hear anything about connective tissue conditions because overall, they're quite prevalent. And you know what little research we have about Ehlers-Danlos, like the excellent Demler study in Wales, which was only looking at people who are diagnosed. And of course, we know there's many that go undiagnosed for many years. So the diagnosed figure has to represent, just by common sense and logic, a small fraction of the overall number of people with this condition. They found a, a diagnosed prevalence of 1 in 500 for joint hypermobility syndrome and EDS. And there are articles that speculate that it's much higher than that. I've seen articles speculating 1 to 3%, I think, is one figure. I know some advocacy organizations think that some degree of hypermobility may affect up to, I think, maybe 20% of the population. We can debate on the numbers, but we know this is a prevalent condition from the sheer number of people that we in the community interact with. And especially considering the umbrella of connective tissue conditions, including Marfan syndrome and Lois-Dietz and other conditions, it's quite prevalent. And so for doctors not to be receiving that education just sets us up to fall through the cracks and have our symptoms, like your experience, dealt with on an individual one-off basis without a collective looking at the whole person. And it can take so long to get these other often co-occurring conditions like POTS, like MCAS, diagnosed. And yet the horror of how long it takes for us to get diagnosed and the amount of time we go through being told, oh, we're just stressed, like you said, you know, this concept of hysteria may no longer be in the medical nomenclature as such, but it seems to have been rebranded into this factitious disorder. Yeah. And in reading a little bit about it, some of the factors that are discussed in some of the literature about factitious disorder, they talk about, you know, when patients have seen multiple doctors, that that's a red flag. And I just thought, well, that's also a sign of someone who has a complex medical condition (laughs) and and is suffering.
1: (laughs) If someone who's living a daily hell is going to see more than one or two doctors yes um, and this one of- systemic disease this is not just one isolated part of your body giving you a twinge this is your entire body going up in flames every 24 hours mm-hmm. for multiple reasons on multiple levels with little or no relief or understanding of why it's happening of course people are going to see many many doctors if you had to pull my medical record there's probably 300 doctors in there mm-hmm. I mean- It's just education is lacking, awareness is lacking, and so podcasts like yours and articles like the one that you spotted of mine, that's unfortunately in the shorter term (laughs) the only solution so that if the doctors are ignorant, public aren't.
0: Yes. And, and thank you so much for sharing, you know, your own personal experience. I know it can be so hard to speak out on these things. But I think a lot of us feel compelled to because we're trying to help those out there who were struggling as we were prior to diagnosis. And even those like you know, Stephanie Aston who was diagnosed and still fell into this lack of care situation. And it's very disheartening. I saw an article maybe about a year ago that was talking about uh, I think in the spoonie context, but was saying something to the effect of, Oh, you know, young women are going on TikTok and they're getting ideas about diseases in their heads from TikTok mm. like th- sort of implying to me, and I think many others in the community, because there was a petition to take down that article, implying that people are imagining this condition because of what they see on TikTok. And I thought, found that so heartbreaking, A, because there are many, many people who have been diagnosed with this condition before TikTok even existed. And it was documented by Ayler's and Danlos in the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th. It's been around for a long time. And people who are learning about this on TikTok People don't want to be sick. They don't want to have things wrong with them. But this is one of the few outlets where people can get some information and then begin reading up on the articles and the literature. And so I mm. and I've seen, you know, Reddit threads of doctors speaking in very derogatory ways saying that EDS is a TikTok condition. I saw one post saying it's Munchhausen's by Proxer server, that it's like oh. Munchhausen's by internet, that it just Breaks mm. my heart because that's not the experience of the people who I speak to who are dealing with so many challenges in their life day in and day out.
1: I think the people who comment things like that online are the luckiest people on earth because they have zero cause to have empathy because this never happened to them. Mm-hmm. They are the people who flit along in life with just no problem. You know, they might get a bit stressed out in a bit of road rage or mm-hmm. have a tip with a friend. But they don't go through these sorts of trials and tribulations. So they'll never understand. So they can get behind that keyboard and type, oh, yeah, Munchausen by proxy server or whatever rubbish they want, because they don't have any compassion or understanding. So it's just sad that that's the kind of attitude. And when you see articles talking about, and usually it's women, women who are seeking a diagnosis of ADHD Mm -hmm. or EDS or autism. I wonder why it's women who are seeking these things. Is it because women have been ignored by doctors for many, many years? Yes. I mean, it's quite clear. It's quite clear why this is happening. And it's not because people want to have some quote-unquote trendy illness. It's literally because lots of people have these things. It's been underdiagnosed. People are uneducated about it in the medical field. And so patients are left floundering for years and years and years. Yes. After 20 years of pain, you're going to you're gonna start Googling. You're going to start watching TikTok you're going to start looking at everything you can because no one else is going to you know, connect those dots for you. Unfortunately, you are going to have to be your own doctor for a little while because the real doctors are often failing.
0: Yes, absolutely. And this situation does disproportionately, at least from what we've seen in the literature and some of the articles, affect women. And it does seem highly correlated to the long history of women's pains pain complaints Mm -hmm. not being believed and not taken as seriously and this ancient concept of hysteria where it used to be believed that a woman's uterus moved around her body causing various symptoms and Mm -hmm. the fact that that ludicrous concept has been robustly disproved by scientific evidence we still live with the legacy of it the concept has not gone away and it's it's very disturbing that this concept, which is clearly wrong, which we can all recognize as wrong and absurd, that the sort of heart of the message attached to that hysteria still lives on. And it ends up negatively affecting men and people of all gender identities as well, because this is thought to be a women's condition and all of the stigma that goes along with that and the prejudice that we've talked about. But I also think that from the men that I've spoken to who are hypermobile or have and/or have Ehlers-Danlos it's hard for them too because because this is thought as a, a woman's condition and women's complaining and all of this, when men or people of other gender identities present with these same symptoms, I think they're written off and dismissed as well. And so this is truly a global problem. And I've heard from listeners literally all over the world with shockingly similar stories. So the extent of this is just Truly stunning and heartbreaking. And yet, I think there's something particularly uniquely disturbing about Stephanie Aston's story Mm. because she did advocate so strongly for herself. She was a medical practitioner herself, which is also seen as a risk factor for factitious Mm -hmm. disorder, which I also find very problematic. I saw somewhere the factors for factitious disorder were being female, being in a healthcare profession, and being unmarried. I mean, This is this feel, it feels like we're in the 1800s when I read something like that. But, you know, despite all of her advocacy and the fact that the New Zealand Herald ran a fantastic series about her and four other people with EDS back in 2018, documenting these issues, and still nothing was done substantively to improve her life. And she had to tie what I can only imagine is an incredibly isolating you know, feeling not validated, knowing her rights were being violated. It just truly is a horror upon horror. And I thank you so much for being able to bring clarity and write such an eloquent explanation and, and just a reaction to this situation, because it, it helped me to to find some words to begin to start speaking about this. And like you said, I, I don't think doctors are going to be in general, the medical system, I don't think is coming to save us anytime soon. There are some wonderful physicians who are well educated, who I respect immensely, many of which who have been interviewed on this podcast before, or that I've spoken to personally, but we really need a systemic change in training in medical school and to start with approaching patients with empathy. I mean, the amount of hubris it takes to determine that someone is making up their symptoms without having ruled out all of the medical conditions we know about. And even that, I mean, there are new advancements in medicine and new scientific insights being gleaned all the time. Just a few years ago, they announced, quote unquote, a new organ that they found, which is this fascia web that connects our entire body. And it's like, there really is a lack of humility in recognizing how difficult it is to know all of the intricacies of the human body. And on that note, is there some sort of systemic medical change that you think we should be advocating for as a community? Or are you more of the view that we kind of just need to come together ourselves and share information ourselves, you know, un- until the medical system almost has to reckon with what this is?
1: Well, I think it's a complicated beast and a difficult one to fix, but the baseline should be education so that when you go to, in the UK, a GP, elsewhere, your primary physician, they. Have EDS on their radar. They have hypermobility as on their radar. If that hypermobility is coming with lots of pain, so education so that the first line of medical people you see isn't just listening for horse hoofs. If you see what I mean, there's it could be it could be zebra hoofs as well that are clacking in there. So the first step will be education in the interim to the primary physicians because it's going to take a long time to change. What's being taught in medical school to start with primary care, educate them on EDS. So every single doctor in every single practice knows that connective tissue disorders should be on the list of issues, and hypermobility can be a problem. It's not a benign thing that helps you freak out your friends with a bendy thumb. It's Mm -hmm. over time going to not feel very benign at all. So you can start there, but also then at that next step in the in the health journey, having specialized centers in the UK, there was one and it was closed. So there's nowhere in this country that has a specialist, NHS I mean, hypermobility slash EDS, like hyper, hypermobile EDS center. So if you don't have a multidisciplinary team within specialized centers, you'll end up sending out EDS patients like me to physiotherapists who don't know about connective tissue disorders, who end up injuring me every single time I try to do physio for 20 years. Mm-hmm. That leaves me disabled, leaves me more injured, Than I should have been or could have been if I'd been seen and diagnosed early and had a team of multidisciplinary doctors, physicians, emotional support, whatever, all in one place who can manage my illness, help me manage it so that I don't get to the state I'm in now where I can't stand up long enough to boil the kettle and make a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. So you've got the primary care, lack of education, which can be fixed. It's not a hard one. It can be done it takes time it takes motivation it takes money but surely when this many people are suffering it's worthy of all those things then the specialist centers and also then public awareness so that when somebody's having these odd things happening to them for many many years they have it on their radar too so it's not an easy fix or a quick fix but given that this illness is not rare hypermobile eds is not rare like you said earlier the study showed the prevalence looks to be closer to one in 500. And that's of the people who are already diagnosed with hypermobility illnesses. So it's just, it's just not good enough where
0: we're at right now. Absolutely. And thank you for mentioning that part about physio and physical therapy. And that was another part of your article that I really resonated with because physical therapy is often recommended for hypermobility conditions in general and the specific complications that arise. And yet for some people, it helps them a great deal and it's wonderful and it's great. But for a significant percentage of the population, people have been injured by physical therapists who are not Mm -hmm. aware that a one size fits all approach not only doesn't always work for hypermobile people,
1: but can actually be harmful. Mm. And I've been harmed many times. Mm-hmm. Every single physio I've ever had has harmed me to the point that I've had to stop going to see them. And it's not been from anything even extreme. Some of them have been a bit extreme because of the way that they were doing physiotherapy, but other people, it's been very subtle, but because of the complete lack of awareness about even at that point that I had it, I didn't know I had it because nobody had diagnosed it. But when they were seeing that I wasn't tolerating even the mildest of, you know, repetitive exercises, then maybe there should have been a red flag going up that there's a reason why this patient cannot tolerate the slightest touch on her body or the simplest, you know, clam exercise. You know, just move your leg like this three times every couple of days. And it, you know, it was causing me serious harm. So, you know, bad... (laughs) Non-EDS-informed physios do a lot of damage and it's just, again, it all circles back around to education, doesn't it? Yes. If they're not trained to spot hypermobile, you know, like the, where it has that not sort of looks like a just normal hypermobility, but it's it's coming with lots of different symptoms, then that should be a red flag for them. They should be referring on.
0: Yes. And I always, I try to look for silver linings and it is really hard. This feels like a particularly dark moment. Mm for the Ehlers-Danlos and hypermobile communities, and for a lot of reasons, really. But Ms. Aston's incredibly tragic, heartbreaking death is really bringing to the surface what a lot of suffering has been kept in shame and in silence. And so many people feel like they're suffering alone. And It's just this incredible circumstance where you have potentially millions of people in the world who don't even know they have this condition and are struggling with wanting to trust their physicians and trust the system because so much of us are raised to respect authority and that the doctor knows best. And yet, you know, knowing that something is really seriously is wrong, and that we can't keep up with our peers, and we have little injuries that happen from seemingly insignificant things, like I think you mentioned rolling a dice, and that mm-hmm. being um, a source of a, an injury, and um, it reminds I me. me of my elbow
1: the yeah. mm-hmm.
0: And it reminds me of when Billie Eilish came out and talked about her hypermobility. She talked about feeling like she had been gaslighting herself. And that just, that concept resonated with me and broke my heart because I think so many patients go through that process of thinking, well, you know, the doctor's saying that everything's fine and I'm just stressed out. Is that what's going on? You know, until the diagnosis really gives Mm. an explanation that helps people to begin to understand and look for answers
1: and potential treatments. And it's really true. That diagnosis, I mean, just speaking from my own personal journey, um, I sus- once I learned about Hive Mobile EDS, this was kind of mid mid last year. Once I learned about it and I read more and more about it, and I became so sure that this was what's going on, I started to feel validated in how hard I was finding life. I, was, I felt like this is real. This really is difficult. I'm not weak. It's not that I'm weak of body, weak of mind. Like there's something actually really seriously wrong here. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why I'm finding it hard. And when I had the diagnosis, the, the level of guilt I felt day to day went from like 100 to 10 because I can't feel guilty anymore that I'm having to sit down right now to do this or that I can't take my child to the park or that I can't cook dinner I I I literally cannot there's a there's a very real physical biological physiological reason that this is so incredibly hard and painful for me so having a diagnosis not just opens up access to care hopefully you know for some unfortunately like Steph Aston, it It didn't, and it should have, but Mm -hmm. for many people, I'm hoping that it does, and even if you're still battling to access care, you now understand why this is happening in your body. It's not just some unknown, you know, boogeyman, like, there's a a real reason that this is happening to you.
0: Absolutely, and in all of the hypermobile people that I've spoken to and people with EDS over the years it's my experience from those conversations that the people who were diagnosed as children, like I've spoken to people who were diagnosed everywhere between eight and late into adulthood, fifties, sixties. And the people who are diagnosed as children seem by far to be doing the best. And one of those women was interviewed on this podcast and she said it was a great help to her because She was able to have something to blame her symptoms on other than herself. And I just found that so heartbreaking thinking. Of what it could have been like to be diagnosed earlier and have that answer to not have to go through that tension with oneself. And another young woman who was diagnosed very young as well, she talked about on this podcast, she talked about getting po- uh, access to occupational therapy and accommodations at school. And of course, that's not the experience for all people who are diagnosed as children. Some still have mm-hmm. to fight tooth and nail to get basic accommodations. I mean, in my own Region. There was a federal court case where there were comments from a doctor in a case where a mother was trying to get accommodations for her child at school for things like not having him run in gym class, which seems Mm -hmm. pretty self-evident for people that know much about Mm -hmm. Um, hypermobility when it's, you know, severe and affecting joints and causing pain. And the remarks from this doctor were something to the effect of that headaches and fatigue to the point of being debilitated are not symptoms of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. (laughs) And I just thought like, Where are you getting this from? Because you can look for five minutes and read just a few highlights of articles. And those are some of the most common conditions, you know, instability of the neck, POTS, mast cell. There's so many things that cause headache and debilitating fatigue. And so for him to say this and that to end up in a federal court case, it's just like we have so far to go. It's just so embarrassing for the medical
1: community too. Yeah. is really bad. But there was something you mentioned um, just now about um, how it would have helped potentially to have a diagnosis earlier. Mm -hmm. And when I look back at all the major injuries that I've suffered that I now know were, you know, that I was at risk of simply because of my hypermobile EDS. When I look back at each of those injuries, if I'd have known that I had EDS, I could have prevented each of them. I would have got an automatic car so that when I had to drive, you know, 100,000 miles a year, for my job as a journalist, as a junior journo, I would have got myself an automatic and I wouldn't have shred the tendons in my knee. Mm-hmm. You know, if I had known, I would have worn wrist support so that during my um, school exams, I wouldn't burst a tendon out of my wrist. Mm-hmm. If I had known, then I wouldn't have gone on birth control that had such high progesterone in it. Mm-hmm. Progesterone makes it worse. Mm-hmm. If I had known, I would have strength trained while I was still strong. I would have done it so much differently because i would have known that if i don't this is what it's going to this is where you're going to go potentially it would have been such a protective thing for me to have the diagnosis as a young child as a teenager even as a young woman when i was still pre mobile i was in a lot of pain but i was still mobile but now these injuries are just never resolving actually and i'm just the list of injuries is getting longer the the years that i could have protected my body i feel are gone
0: yes so, And that should be a basic human right for people to have knowledge about their physical body that they can use to make informed consent decisions about how they choose to
1: use their body. And also not just consent about how they, you know, take care of their bodies and choose whatever for their bodies. But similarly, earlier diagnosis would have meant that because most of us have many comorbidities, I have at least three. But if I'd have known years ago that this sensation I get when I just feel like I'm going to die because I'm so tired, it's probably to do with the fact that I've got dysautonomia, Mm -hmm. that if I get hot, I just can't cope, that I can't cool down, that when I get tired, I feel like I've got a fever, but there's no fever. That's been happening to me since I was, you know, one of my earliest memories as a child is that sensation of fever without fever. Mm Mm-hmm. So if I'd have known, if my parents had known, then a simple electrolyte a day would have mm-hmm. met, helped me feel so much better for mm-hmm. decades of my life. But if, if we don't have the awareness, we don't have the diagnosis, we don't have the protective factors of giving an early diagnosis.
0: Absolutely, thank you so much for sharing that experience. That is a very common thing that I hear in many hypermobile people mm-hmm. um, who wished they hadn't competed in, you know, very high instability causing sports like skiing or football, or, you know, even down to simple things like the clothing we wear, like Mm -hmm. wearing high heels, you know, putting hips at, under more stress, knees under more stress, ankles and more stress. It's there's just There is so much that can be done with just that knowledge. I think a lot of the community understands like there are no miracle cures coming around the corner. Mm-hmm. And I think there are legitimate questions as to whether this condition needs to be cured or whether we're just a variant of the human experience in the way people with other conditions, being blind, being deaf, there's some great advocacy in those communities of people saying, we're not broken, we're not less than we're different. And different doesn't mean worse. It You know, it's every human being is a unique combination of abilities and gifts and obstacles and challenges. And having that knowledge from as early of a time as possible is just so critically important. And so I, I thank you so sincerely for Your excellent, very articulate advocacy on this subject. Um, Maybe if we could close by a really a a tough question, but one to kind of contemplate on. You made an excellent point in your article about justice and Mm -hmm. something like you know, what does justice for Stephanie and all of those who have been dismissed or misdiagnosed, you know, mistreated? What does it look like? And and what can we do now? We've touched a bit on that, but. Do you have thoughts about what justice looks like in this situation? It's
1: it's very hard because justice is usually thought of to bring closure and peace mm-hmm. and perhaps right or wrong. But unfortunately for Stephanie, her life is over and there's no fixing that. It's, it's too late for justice for her, in that sense. But what can be hoped for is that when her family look around – at how EDs patients are treated that we that they see and hear less disbelief that they hear more success more positive engagement with the medical community and they start to see that the thing that Stephanie was championing and campaigning for for so long herself and helping so many other people that that is that is the thing that prevails because nothing anyone can do can f- fix the failures that mm-hmm. unfortunately she suffered as a patient and having said that I do hope that if along the way there was medical negligence that those doctors are brought to account in these sorts of cases there just needs to be such a deep long hard look at themselves the hospitals involved you know in any case like this there has to be robust procedures to stop it happening again so that other patients the the patients the people that we see in the community who talk daily, regularly, about another doctor disbelieving them, another one being sent away. There was a lady who contacted me when I wrote another article about EDS, and she said, I took your article to the GP, and I highlighted all the bits that were relevant for me, and she still said, it's all in your head. Ugh. So this is, I mean, it's not some you know early 19th century problem in the sense that people are ignored and dismissed and claim to be dramatic. It's unfortunately very much still happening. mm mm-hmm. So it's so hard to have a proper answer because what happened, Stephanie was just—it was just abhorrent. Mm -hmm. But we can only hope that awareness rises and education goes hand in hand with that, and things improve for patients all over the world. Because no, no one in the EDS community is having a good time. No one in the hypermobile community is having a good time right now.
0: Absolutely, and I echo those sentiments, and I very much hope that we in the community continue, can continue to advocate as much as we can. And you've done a fantastic job of that. And it's so disheartening to hear, you know, even despite bringing your article in, Mm. someone would still be told it's all in their head. This is such an uphill battle, but I hope we can kind of rally together and do what we can to, you know, like you said, we, we can't bring her back. We can't bring her justice in a meaningful sense, but Perhaps with us working together and leaning on each other and advocating, it is very much my dear hope that we can make it so that she did not die in vain, that there was some lessons that came out of that. And I share your your hope for accountability and, and transparency mm. into investigations when things like this go on, because we didn't even really get into many of the details, but it is her experience was just absolutely horrendous and
1: we'll include a link
0: to the people magazine article about uh stephanie Aston and links to your wonderful recent articles yeah just Mm -hmm. thank you so much for all of your advocacy and for bravely sharing your experience and writing so eloquently about it and we really thank thank you for your time today thank you for having me
1: is it okay if i just add one point absolutely if any of any of the listeners are experiencing what the lady who got in touch with me in in that you've taken documentation with you you've taken articles you've taken even a GP toolkit or checklist and they still aren't listening to you please 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 seek out a second opinion a third opinion a fourth opinion and I know that when you are exhausted with pain it's really hard to advocate like that but if one doctor says no and you are feeling unsatisfied with that it's your right to have a second opinion so please even talk to your GP surgery or And see if anyone there is EDS informed and go and see them. If that first one says no, it doesn't mean that they're right. They're just probably not listening well enough.
0: That's such an important point. and I agree. And anyone, as always, listeners, feel free to reach out to us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com. I work with some fantastic patient advocates, and I'm happy to share whatever information and resources I possibly can. And that's such a good point about seeking second opinions. And yeah, thank you so much, Putea van Terheiden, for joining us today. Um, it's really been lovely speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks to all of our listeners. We'll see you next time. Bye.